News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we've been hearing, a landmark day in the UK today. The first COVID-19 vaccines have been administered in that country. We had a chance to catch up with our Global News European Bureau Chief, Crystal Guman Singh, about what's been going on. Crystal, thanks for joining us this morning. It does seem like it is an historic day over in the UK with the first person, a 90-year-old woman, getting the Pfizer vaccine. Absolutely. Maggie Keenan is her name, and she got her shot at 6.31 this morning in Coventry, England. Uh, that's located pretty much between London and Liverpool. Um, a lot of people were there. They applauded her after her shot, and as if she wasn't adorable enough sitting there in a festive T-shirt with a little penguin and a Santa hat. Um, it's her birthday next Aww. week. She'll be 91, and she's a, a grandmother and, and was uh, was excited about getting the vaccine and being the very first person in the United Kingdom uh, to get this vaccine and really the first person in the world to be given a vaccination for COVID-19 outside of a clinical trial. Wow, good for her. Okay, so what was the process by which they decided who was going to be getting this shot first? Yeah, so originally, as soon as this was approved here in the UK by the regulatory body, they, they decided that the, the priority group would first be those who are most at risk of dying from COVID-19. And that is sort of the older age group. So at this point, um, they're looking at anyone who is over the age of 80 um, and at high risk. And because it has to be given out at hospitals at this point, there's 50 different hospital locations across the UK. They're looking at outpatients, people who are going to be going to the hospital, uh, someone who's being discharged, but also there are a small number of, of um, home care workers as well as different um, National Health Services workers who will also be getting the vaccine in this first rollout phase. Exactly. I know that every country is getting an initial right number of doses. So how many doses does the UK have and how many people do they think they'll be able to get this first time around? Yeah, this is a really important part. Just because a vaccine is approved doesn't mean everyone gets it right away. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to deal with getting it into a site and, and then rolling it out. So the uh, initial um, batch that uh, is ready for the UK to be rolled out is 800,000 doses. We have to remember that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine requires two shots. So that really means 400,000 people will be able to get this uh, vaccination in this first round with this particular vaccine that was approved. So that's not a huge group. Um, You know, we have to keep in mind, they have to make sure that you can get that second shot. It has to be the same vaccine. So Mm -hmm. a limited number of people and then, of course, getting it into people's arms. You know, um, this vaccine, incredibly challenging to deal with, has to be kept at very, very cold temperatures, minus 70 degrees Celsius. It comes in larger batches. And that's the reason we're seeing it being done in hospital settings, because they have the facilities to keep this vaccine at its optimal temperature. So challenges not only with how much vaccine they have, but the locations of where it can be stored, and then also, you know, getting it actually into people, scheduling them for for these vaccinations. Right. And how is it, Crystal, that the UK managed to start this so quickly while other countries, even the United States, still waiting? 
Well, really, it comes down. Every country has their own regulatory body, their own process that reviews the data and decides whether or not they can go ahead with this. Uh, we know that Pfizer-BioNTech had applied um, for emergency use approval in the UK, but also with the EU and with the United States. Um, many of these, almost all of the locations, are using what they're calling a rolling review of the data. Normally, when you have a vaccine, and we know this, this one came together very quickly mm-hmm. when you look at sort of the historic idea when it comes to vaccines. But as the, they were, the trials were going ahead, data was being continuously shared instead of waiting for the end of it, bulking it all together and then dumping it on the regulators. So they were going through things, you know, at a faster, faster pace, which is why they say they were able to come up with the approval and get it done so quickly. Now, we were able to get the vaccine shipped here. It came at the end of last week on Friday and Saturday. They started moving it around to different locations and a pretty quick, impressive turnaround to get uh, it into people's arms as of today. It certainly is. All right, Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. That's Krista Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief, talking about what an historic day it is in the UK today. They have started not just rolling out the vaccine, but already administering it uh, to people in long-term care homes. Uh, the first two people to get it, 90-year-old Margaret, and the second person to get it was a man named William Shakespeare in his 80s, only in the UK, right? There'll be more to come on that story throughout the day today. And of course, that just raises questions questions for us here in Canada. We heard Prime Minister Trudeau say yesterday that Canada will be receiving early doses of that same vaccine starting next week. Almost a quarter million doses we're talking about, but what's the actual plan for rolling it out? Those are the questions that still remain. Let's talk about the real estate market out there right now, because we know some stuff is selling very quickly, right? I've seen things go on sale and boom, gone in a week. But that's mainly single family homes and townhouses for condos it's a different story. Joining us now to talk more about that is Idle Insights founder, Dane Idle. Dane, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure, Simi. Good to be back with you. What is going on with the condo market? Yeah, the condo market uh, is seeing a plethora of inventory, uh, as you say, conversely, absolutely uh, stark contrast to the detached market. So um, the condo market overall, Greater Vancouver, is back uh, or, or very near the 2019 peak levels. So as I say, there's, there's absolutely a ton of inventory. And there's really no investment purchasing going on. It's all owner-occupied, especially for the condo market. And we're seeing um, the previous owner-investors looking to stem the losses. Uh, The downtown core itself is is extremely off. So we have areas like Yaletown off 30% from their previous peaks. The West End is off 48%. And the outlying anomaly is Cole Harbour down closer to 70% from its Ooh. previous peak. Um, yeah, it, now it is uh, light or less uh, active than the other markets, right. but nevertheless, the data still is down. So, Dane, is, is part of this the reason because a lot of these people would have bought those condos probably at the height of the market? Absolutely. So that's what we see. Basically, that January of 2017 prices really escalated all the way up until January of 2018. There was over a $100,000 increase. And what we've seen uh, basically since then is, again, 2018 being the peak, um, and now we've eroded all of those gains. And across the uh, the spectrum, especially in the city of Vancouver, prices are back down to the 2017, even some areas back to the 2016 level. So uh, it's a great opportunity for uh, owner-occupied purchases especially given historical prices. Right. So what you're saying there is that it's great if you want to buy a condo to live in, not so great if you want to buy one as an investment. 
That's right. Yeah, the investment markets uh, has been taking it on the chin, uh, and, and it looks like that won't uh, curtail anytime soon. Uh, the, the the recent notice of the uh, the tripling of the vacant home tax definitely wasn't uh, any aid to this market. And uh, you know, even uh, as years gone by, it was about trying to get people into properties. Now that exodus from downtown is a real thing. Even if you wanted to rent out the property, it could definitely be a challenge upcoming. But isn't that one of the criticisms that we were seeing kind of at the height of the craziness in the real estate market was that we weren't building homes for people to live in. We were building too much of it for people to invest in. Absolutely. Um, and, and you'll recall for sure um, all of the, the, the lineups for the pre-sales and right. investors just buying multiple, multiple one-bedroom yeah. units. Clearly, they weren't going to live in them all. And, and to your point, that that, that was uh, a conundrum at the time, and they said that they were servicing the market, but uh, in reality, it doesn't seem like that. Really uh, matriculated. Of course, time can still upcome here. And uh, as we say, it, it could be an opportunity to step into the market previously you might have been priced out. Right. Okay. So then if you were thinking about getting into the condo market, like let's say for first time home buyers, is this right. a good time to do that? Um, for owner occupied, we, we do see it being a, a pretty uh, attractive time. Uh, the interest rates are low. We do anticipate more inventory levels coming throughout 2021. So if you're looking for uh, uh, more opportunity or, or more variety in the market, we do believe that there still is time on your side. However, if you have been patiently waiting and you do see an attractive unit, it could be a time to enter into negotiations. Right. So is, if prices do drop a little, though, Dane, there's also the chance that things will start to pick up, right? Because I think a lot of times people are just looking for prices to enter an area that they are more comfortable with. I totally agree. And, and what we see is, um, you know, as, you, as you said earlier, the rapid expansion, the detached prices, right, and, and the multiple offers that are going on. And that's really due to that lack of inventory. So now that we are starting to see the inventory in the condo market return to normal historical levels, there, there is that opportunity to buy. But at the same token, now that we're talking about price losses and maybe a, you know, a, a damaged economy, there is that fear of overpaying for a depreciating asset. And that's where we like to say, you know, based on historical prices, this is an opportune entry point mm-hmm. versus other areas, maybe as a North Burnaby condo market, which is only off 5% from its peak due to its brand new um, release of properties. So that one might be a little bit toppy for our like, whereas a Yale town could be a nice entry. Right. Okay. So clearly some areas have more of a glut of these on the market than others, as you pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. Right across Greater Vancouver, uh, each independent market does vary. They do have their overall trends that likely stay fairly consistent, but each individual market does have its own uh, unique rhythms and gyrations. Okay, so if you were looking for the hottest condo market out there, where would you say that is right now? Hottest is a funny term. Uh, it depends on if you're just looking for uh, an actual sellable market. Like we say, North Burnaby is attractive. Um, but if you're looking for an entry level, we don't really necessarily look for hot markets. We look for more of a depressed market uh, with sellers that are looking to get out to stem losses and don't necessarily care about the last five or $10,000 in the negotiation. And, and, and we can take advantage of those facts. Okay, so where would you say that is? Um, for the condo market right now, we are attracted to the downtown price uh, areas just because the, the pricing volitions are off quite a bit. When you extend out further going east, Surrey condo values are still very high. Uh, we would like to stay away from those. And uh, of course, Maple Ridge detached properties this past month just hit an all-time high, actually broke above their previous 2018 gains. So that for us would be a, a sellable factor, uh, considering that you know the, the Vancouver West and West End detached properties are again off 25. percent We believe that the leading markers of old will continue, will, will eventually come back and be the leading markers uh, coming forward. All right, Dane, thank you so much.
No problem, Simi. I really appreciate your time. Anytime. That's Dane Idol, founder of Idol Insights, their real estate analysis company, talking about the condo market. Not great for condo sellers in the downtown area right now, but there are pockets, as Dane pointed out, where it's better. But essentially, prices very competitive, not like standalone homes or townhouses right now, where the market is still hot for those. Well, it's an interesting question. Could a drug like MDMA be used to effectively treat something like post-traumatic stress disorder? There has some re- There is some research out there that has already proven to be pretty successful. Well, now a Vancouver-based company is seeking approval for a first-of-its-kind MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trial here in Canada. Now, if approved, they say that this trial would take a meaningful step in furthering the access and delivery of these kinds of treatments for people who do experience PTSD. So to learn more about this, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Peyton Nykvest, who is the chair, CEO, and co-founder of the company Numinous. So right now you're seeking approval for what I think is a really interesting idea. And I'm sure that many of our listeners have heard at least a little bit about research using what are considered illicit drugs to treat mental health disorders. For example, studies on the use of small doses of psilocybin to treat depression, to treat PTSD. What is it that you're researching along with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies? AKA MAPS. Yeah, so in regards to our news release, you know, announcing this collaboration with MAPS, and for anybody who doesn't know who MAPS is, MAPS is is really the reason why psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is where it is today. They were founded in 1986, and since 1986 have been feverishly moving MDMA through the clinical trial process. Um, And in particular, the indication that they have gone after is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's currently in in FDA phase three clinical trials, and they recently published their phase three clinical trial data that they had showing about a a 76 to 78% success rate treating treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's phase three trials. Um, So it's really an advanced trial. So showing really, really, really huge promise in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. So how exactly does this work then? You give someone a small dose or a certain dose of MDMA and then you re-expose them in a controlled way to whatever that content was, that, that stimuli that first left them traumatized? Yeah, so, so the MAPS protocol is, is three treatments of MDMA in psychotherapy. Um, two therapists work with an individual um, in the actual treatment itself. And then there's a lot of integration and prep work on either side of those treatments. So, you know, as you, as you said, going through traumatic events that may have caused the, the post-traumatic stress disorder and not to forget or wipe the, the memory of, of those events, but create a healthier and different relationship with them. And so that's sort of what the process looks like. And so far of that 78% that was successful, they studied them a year later and 80% of that 78% still didn't have any of the effects a year later. So it's not only something that's hugely impactful, but it stays with people as well. What is it about MDMA that can assist in helping people overcome those traumas? 
Yeah, um, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I, and uh, Dr. Evan Wood or Dr. Devin Christie would be the best people to answer that. But essentially, what this gives people the ability to do is is calm down the default mode network in the brain, which is where we hold a lot of our our trauma responses, and it allows you to go in and sort of with your defenses down and and your old programming down and gives you the ability to go and relook at those traumatic events and create new neural pathways and new responses while also allowing your nervous system to move the trauma that's held in the nervous system as well to actually alleviate that trauma and, and let it pass and move through you while you're within a therapeutic context with it and guided through it. And I think something that's really important that we we don't skim over either is the fact that you're seeing such significant improvement in only three treatment sessions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, the the thing that our, our chief medical officer regularly talks about is the fact that these substances have curative intent. A lot of the time when we talk about mental health, if you're depressed or you have anxiety or, or any of these different symptoms that, you know, these are things that we're supposed to just manage for the rest of our lives. You get put on an SSRI and it's something you just continue to treat. With psychedelics, we're, t- we're talking about a, potentially a cure and, and allowing people to, to work through these issues and, and get on with their lives. It's really an incredible opportunity that we're seeing that could be here in, in very short time. Now, I imagine getting this type of research approved is difficult for a number of reasons. But, you know, two of the main reasons, uh, I suppose, are one being risk, the potential for risk. Do you see any potential for risk here that is significant? Um, I, I think the big one, the, the biggest risk that I see is just making sure that this is being done in a really well and intentional and thorough way you know these are tools and you know a hammer can be used to build a house and a hammer can be used to hit yourself in the hand with it's really the practitioners and the infrastructure that is wrapped around these tools and these therapies that make them effective so i think that the thing that that we've been really intentional about is is really being thorough and intentional about how we're creating these environments, the training of people and the access to these drugs. The other aspect I imagine that must be a challenge in getting this type of treatment approved or research approved is the stigma, the simple stigma around using drugs like this to treat anything, including mental health issues. Sure. Yeah, totally agree. And I think the thing with stigma is we've got this this incredible body of research that's done by very credible, high quality research institutions that have up until this point been been put through by not-for-profit groups. So it's not like there's a, a monetary agenda that has been behind a lot of this work. MAPS is a not-for-profit. So, you know, it's really, really clean evidence that people just need to be aware of. And I think, you know, that really helps break down the stigma where, Yes, we're talking about psychedelics, but again, you know, the importance of the therapeutic container is really what makes them effective. And that's what we really want to be highlighting. Well, it sounds fascinating. And 
Thank you for walking us through the process and explaining more about it. I mean, of course, we certainly wouldn't want to encourage anyone to try this on their own without all of the guidance that you discussed there being uh, in the process that you're talking about. So, you know, I really appreciate you walking us through the whole process and, and telling us more about how it works because it really, really is interesting. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Where to start when talking about a man like Joe Arve? I mean, he was a constitutional lawyer. That was his job title. But it does not tell the story of the way he shaped the lives of so many Canadians. Now, we know yesterday that he passed away at the age of 71. But we need to talk about his legacy that has touched Canadians right across the country. This man pretty much had a regular seat arguing in front of the Supreme Court of Canada for cases like medically assisted dying. We're talking about LGBTQ rights here in Canada, Uh, you know, couldn't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. That was his landmark case before the Supreme Court back in 1995. Uh, He also argued to help establish safe injection sites in Vancouver. Remember how contentious that was. He was the lawyer behind that wanted to talk about the legacy that he leaves. So joining us now is former Premier, former Federal Health Minister and lawyer, uh, Ujjal Dosanjh. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. When you hear the name Joe Arve, what comes to your mind? Oh, we were always in awe of Joe Arve. I met him several times when I was the Attorney General for about four and a half years in British Columbia. <clears throat> he worked against government. He worked for government. But he was always working for bringing about equality and social justice uh, through law. And uh, he was uh, larger than life and had a wicked sense of humor, too. Um, and and I remember um, being briefed by him on certain cases um, uh, in my in my attorney general's office. Um, and uh, and, you know, this man believe deeply uh, in equality and fairness um, in the world. And actually, uh, that's why, you know, most of the cases that his name is attached to are cases about equality, about fairness, about how we treat each other in this country. Is it fair to say that, Ujjal, that if you as the Attorney General found, you know, yourself fighting a case and realizing that Joe Arve was on the other side, would it make you take another look at what was going on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he could actually take you aside and say, wow, you're, lo- you're you know, fighting a losing battle, Attorney General. Um, <laughs> he, 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 he had that sense of humor. And, um, and uh, you know, I, when I was called by your, by your radio station, I, I sort of looked back and, and saw some of the things. And, and um, you, um, you um, named some of the cases that he was involved in. Uh, he was uh, probably uh, the best-known constitutional litigator uh, in the country uh, for the last um, few decades. And, uh, and I think he had uh, respect all around, whether you were against him or mm-hmm. you were with him. Um, and, and he, he uh, never minced his words, even when he wasn't arguing cases before the courts. Um, uh, he was very frank with you, very honest, and uh, just a great human being and a great lawyer. What really struck me, too, in reading about him in the last 24 hours and, and knowing about him for so many years is he seemed so ahead of his time. Right. Like when he took on a case, he took on something that maybe the rest of the Canadian public would come around to 10 years from now. 
Well, absolutely. Um, you know, when he took on the Little Sisters case about mm-hmm. freedom of speech, um, um, you know, there was a lot of derision in some quarters um, and a lot of doubt, uh, a lot of cynicism. Um, but uh, he stuck with it, and um, he was a you know he was a he was a maverick in the sense that he he decided what he wanted to do and and did it. Didn't care what you thought. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't running for a popularity contest. He was he was wanting to change the world in, as much as a lawyer could. And I think he's been one of the most effective uh, constitutional litigators in the country in the last several decades. How do we honor a man like that? How do you, now that he's gone and, you know, too soon, as always, but how do you honor somebody like that? Well, you honor by, um, I think, um, as a society, and particularly around the law schools and the and the courts in the country, uh, promoting the kind of legal activism and the kind of legal rigor um, and intellectual rigor uh, and the uh, commitment to social justice and equality that he brought. It was rare. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful to see, and it was it's absolutely wonderful to have lived through his time. So remarkable. Ujjal, thank you for joining us to talk about him today. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Really appreciate that. That's Ujjal Dosanjh, former premier, former attorney general for many years, federal politicians, and lawyer. So he knows all about a man like Joe Arvite. Listen, do yourself a favor. If you're just hearing this name in the news, you know, and it's new to you, just Google it. And do some research about this man, because he was amazing. As a constitutional lawyer, I would say there is not another person, as Ujjal pointed out, in the entire country who did as much for the rights of the individual as Joe Arve did. Uh, You talk about freedom of speech. You may not remember the Little Sisters bookstore even story and how controversial that was at the time, but he fought for the rights of of, LGBTQ people. He fought for the safe injection site when everybody... Everybody, you know, thought that was not a good idea. He fought for it. And now look at it, right? It's a well-established idea that people go, yeah, that works. Well, he, he, was, he was like fighting for that before it was very popular. So, yeah, this was a man who's been at the forefront of so many social issues so far ahead of his time. He passed away at the age of 71. Uh, No word yet on what a memorial is going to be like or if there is going to be one or how they're going to do it. But he deserves an awful lot of accolades. And so get a chance today, read a story about him, and just know that he's been an important person in Canadian history. Let's talk about another story you're hearing about in the news overnight. A controversial tax increase in Surrey that is going ahead even though there was quite a bit of opposition from other members of council. So it's not a property tax increase per se. It's an increase in the parcel tax, which is the $100 annual fee that is paid for every parcel of land in Surrey. That's going up to $300 as a result of the vote last night. Let's talk more about this. Councillor Jack Hundell has actually quit the review committee in protest of this. He joins us now to talk about his concerns. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. What is it that concerned you about this? It's the fact that how it is such an unfair tax and the way it's being brought in and not properly disclosed to the public. What you're talking about is this, this $300 uh, levy attached to every, um, every parcel is uh, impacting someone, whether you live in a $300,000 condo or a $3 million home. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a tax on the people that can least afford it. And when you add it all up on an average home, 
you add the 2.9 that they're bringing in, plus also this, you're looking at anywhere from you know 11 to 14 percent, and people cannot afford that. Right. But when you look at all the headlines of these stories, they will tell you that Surrey only had a property tax increase of 2.9%. Is that the objective then to keep it out of that property tax increase? Uh, no, I think it's very misleading. And even in the press release that came out this morning from the city, uh, it doesn't really do the full math on it. It just tells you that uh, this is a 2.9 and Surrey is on the on the bottom side of the taxation. Well, everybody knows that Surrey's been on the bottom side of the taxation, but um, you can't have it both ways either. Uh, you can't say it's only 2.9 and not do all the math and say, look, this is what our, we need to be at the minimum to get to where we need to be. Um, and also being on the right. bottom and profiting being on the bottom isn't always the best place to be. So tell me then, when you were on the committee that was reviewing this, what happened? Uh, so it's, it's a committee that meets um, uh, a few times a year and you basically endorse the, par- uh, the parcel tax. And this is a, a review that happens before these properties go out to uh, the public and public notice to say that, look, uh, these properties potentially need to, uh, you know, uh, or need to pay up their taxes or they're going to be um, foreclosed on essentially by the city. Okay. And so what happened when you did quit the committee then? Did you get any reaction? What did what did people say? Um, well, I think people understood the reason behind it. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, this increase to $300 has been going on, uh, you know, it's very publicly discussed, I think, for the last month. Uh, since the the budget draft budget came out, um, you know, uh, when I notified the mayor on it, uh, no answer back from the mayor, uh, which I didn't expect. And last night in the committee appointments, uh, when they reappointed uh, the mayor, or generally appointed not just for this committee, but for most of the committees, just members from his own teams. So are you saying that none of the opposition members got committee positions? Nope. Uh, uh, there was only a few. In fact, most of us uh, lost some of our committees that we were on. Um, and there'll be a full list out for that, I think, later on today as well. What is the what is the atmosphere like at council meetings these days in Surrey, Jack? Um, you know, you you try to go there and you try to advocate for really what you hear back from the community. Like during this budget discussion, even there's probably well over 150 emails and communications that came in directly to us, including speakers. Uh, and with only, I think there's one or two people that supported um, this budget, uh, and yet when when you're not listening to the public, it's really not um, what you're there for, uh, I feel. You're there to advocate for the public's concerns and and, and certainly helping the public in a time like, like now when we're going through a pandemic, when people are facing those challenges for housing, for employment. Um, and in one hand, you have the federal government and provincial government giving money. On the other hand, you have uh, the city of Surrey reaching in and then pulling that money right out before it even uh, lands in the taxpayer's hand. And so where, where, it's frustrating. Yeah, where is mm-hmm. that money going then? What what are the financial pressures right now in the city of Surrey? Well, I think like everywhere else, you know, you have that financial pressure uh, from COVID. Um, you know, at a municipal level, we uh, are obligated to balance our budget. And so far this year, Surrey did that by laying almost 2,000 staff uh, throughout uh, in the middle of the pandemic you know, reducing services, which is very similar to what every other city had to do as well. Uh, we don't have a lot of capital um, or cash reserves, so there's a huge cuts in, in service. Um, so I think some some of those are some of the challenges. Uh, but this money that we're talking about now, uh, like bringing in and borrowing, um, you know, up to $150 million over five years for capital projects. And these capital projects were on the books in 2018 and 2019, taken off, some of it due to COVID. Um, some of it was just to balance the books to pay for this the one and only project uh, that the Marinus team seems to think is of concern for the city, which is this police transition. Yeah, so when you look at the books then, what concerns mm-hmm. you about what's going on? 
What concerns me mostly is one, the amount that we're borrowing and two, the lack of transparency around us is, um, uh, you know, we're already, uh, the city of Surrey already uh, is borrowed, I think it's about $189 million. Uh, on top of that, you're adding another, you know, $150 million. And despite how cheap money is right now, uh, there's a time to borrow and then there's a time to save and a time to actually give back to our citizens. And certainly there's a lot of citizens in Surrey that could uh, benefit from uh, from less taxation. Right. I think, Jack, a lot of people would assume that given that you're a councillor in the city of Surrey, that you would mm-hmm. be able to get answers to the questions that you have, like about the budget, about how the money is being spent, about what's going on. Can you get those questions or answered or do you still have trouble with that? No, I you know I certainly have uh, that's challenging uh, certainly when you're in the uh, minority on council, uh, but it's also challenging when um, you know a majority of these discussions do happen in enclosed, uh, so you really can't go and have, have open transparent dialogue with the public on it, and then we receive the um, financial reports at the same time the public does. So then it is a matter of going back and forth for weeks with staff trying to get some of the questions answered. And it was challenging last night for Councillor Locke as well. She tried to get a very simple answer from from the mayor and he kept deferring it, deferring it, and and from staff. And there's not just pressure on the councillors, but I think there's pressure on the staff as well um, in this uh, sort of really politically charged uh, council that we have. And so we know that there's going to be more money, obviously millions brought in by these changes, 2.9% property tax, increase in the parcel tax. Where is that money earmarked then? Where is it going to go? Well, I think the money is, is um, the projects themselves are yet to be determined. The um, tax increases, uh, I think the majority is going to go to support uh, the city. Uh, but yet, uh, you know, these projects were on the books without us having to borrow 150 million dollars last year uh, but the money that's being set aside and saved is all for the police transition um, and that transition is based on a report now which has data which is like four years old and yet now we have the police board that is responsible and the new chief to bring forth a budget and also a proper report on what the future police transition if it even happens here in Surrey and there's no guarantee it's going to happen uh, yet it's going to move to completion for the next election. What do you mean there's no guarantee it's going to happen? Sure it seems like it's going to happen. Well, there's a lot of challenges ahead here. Despite the mayor saying, you know, it's a done deal, done deal all the time, it's not a done deal. There's issues uh, that they still need to be resolved uh, that were brought out from the provincial government, such as file continuity, the HR piece, regional impact, there's a whole litany of things uh, before the uh, the next step in the approval process. Plus, ultimately, you got 676 days until the next election, and the next council could very well like, get some power. So, you know what, we're putting a halt to this, and uh, we're going to invest in the RCMP and retain the RCMP. Well, we'll see what happens. Interesting. Jack, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you very much, Amy. Have a good day. You too. That's Jack Hundell, who's a Surrey City Councillor, talking about the finances in Surrey. New budget passed last night. I don't think a lot of Surrey homeowners are going to be happy when they get that uh, letter from the city telling them that their parcel uh, tax went up you know, from $100 to $300. And then there's a 2.9% property tax increase as well. Now, if you live in Surrey and you want something to say about that, just drop me an email, me at cknw.com. So we can't get together for Christmas, but that doesn't mean that we can't still embrace the holiday spirit, the true spirit, which is that of giving, of course, at this time of year. So we want to make sure that all the different organizations out there that help people in need still get the boost that they need. Now, towards that, joining us now is Chris Bayless, Executive Director of the Lower Mainland Christmas Bureau. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Well, we really want to promote this as much as we possibly can, because I know you guys are in tough, right? Donations are down. 
Yeah, so I'll, because a lot of our major traditional events are gone completely or going in a really restricted manner, we're significantly down on toy flow this year. Like how significantly are we talking about here? Uh, best cases, 50%. Worst cases, 100%. Whoa, that yeah. much. Okay. Yep. So I know there's a special event going on today. What is it? Well, today, London Drugs is partnered with Vancouver Fire Rescue and Charitable, and they have six locations London Drugs open from 9 to 3, 8 a.m. till 3 p.m. We can drive through and drop off toys in a socially distant, safe manner. In fact, I'm at the London I'm at the London Drugs on Kingsway right now with the firefighters and the London Drugs people. Okay, so you're encouraging people to, if you think about this today, you can go to one of these six locations of London Drugs until 3 o'clock and drop off a toy. What kind of toys do you need? We're always in need of things for teens and preteens, uh, gift cards work, electronics, things we can use for you know young ladies and young men. Um, that's always a pressing need for our bureau and all the other bureaus, of course. Right. This must be very discouraging. I mean, what, what are people who need your services like? There must be an increased demand in that. Well, it's, it's a funny year. We are, we are committed to serving every Christmas bureau that needs our help. Some of them are doing different programs, as we are. And we have gone to a full online registration appointment system. And we've added more days and more hours. And there's a lot of fear about coming, a lot of fear about going on public period. Right. But we are, we are fully subscribed for all our appointments for this year already. And we've added more days and more hours. And we're getting through it. And we're going to help every family that can, we can get through the doors safely, of course. So there's a more there is a underlying sort of desperation. A lot of people that would normally be working are not. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of working class families that are just struggling. So it's just more more desperate times. But a lot of positive. A lot of people have stepped up. A lot of our clients and families are just happy we're open and they can pick their own toys and. Right. I'm pretty proud of everything we're doing, actually. You should be proud of everything you're doing. Now, Chris, tell me when somebody comes to the Christmas Bureau for help, what do you provide to them? Oh, so we provide, of course, support to local Christmas bureaus ranging from Hope to, to Vancouver. But we provide them with a primary toy, a stocking stuffer, a book, a stuffed animal. And, of course, we supply gift cards so they can purchase food for their Christmas or holiday season, whatever they want to buy. Wow. Okay. So if parents are really down on their luck, then they come to you to help make Christmas happen for their kids. Exactly. Okay, so I know you had the the kind of drive-through one earlier too. You're trying to make up for all these different events. Like, how have donations been so far? I know they're down, but when you remind people, do they get into the spirit of giving? We're get, um, we're getting a lot more traction because now it's it's December. People start to think about Christmas. Um, our events because they're usually regional in nature. We we recommend it to our our supporters. You know, if you can't come to our bureau, at least go to a local bureau somewhere. So we've we've managed to I hope spread the love around and uh, we are seeing some good financial support and we are seeing an uptick in toys and the most important thing is remember we're going to get through 2020 help everybody we're more worried about 2021 but that's next year that is next year okay so you need to fill up those shelves to help people so once again chris where are you and what's happening today today is the Van- london drugs Vancouver firefighters charitable toy drop at six different london drug locations we're at 1870 pandora street in vancouver our website is lmtb.ca. You can go online and make a financial donation, or you can drop a toy by the Christmas Bureau. As of this week, we're, we're Monday to Saturday, so we're, we're there a lot. Okay, lots of options there. Chris, thank you.
Always a pleasure, Simi. Thank you. That's Chris Bayless, Executive Director of the Lower Mainline Christmas Bureau. Donations are way down. And of course, people needing help, well, that list is growing longer. So you can help them out. So firefighters today will be accepting gifts for the Lower Mainline Christmas Bureau at six locations of London Drugs. And they're doing that right now. They've started at eight this morning until three o'clock this afternoon. And you can definitely help them out. If you usually give in some way, and I know that people do, and a lot of those events aren't happening this year, just keep in mind, you can also help them out directly at the Lower Mainland Christmas Bureau. Hey, do you remember the Woodward's food floor? I think many people who grew up in BC before Woodward's went out of business have fond memories of it. I know I do. And so does our next guest because she used to work there and she's written a book about it. So joining us now with her first-hand account of working there is Margaret Cadwallader, whose book is called Food Floor. Margaret, thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be here, Simi. Well, I love talking about this. Now, when did you work at the food floor? I worked there in from 1967 until 1971, and then I was back just for a couple of months in 1987, just before it closed. Oh, boy. People, do, people they sure have fond memories of it, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And why do you think that is? Um, well, I... I think it, it was sort of a part of, so much a part of Vancouver at the time. And I think it was just sort of thrilling to go down there. There was a lot uh, that was on offer, you know, it was it, just an institution in Vancouver. And, so know, true. And what was yeah. it like to work there? Oh, well, it was a lot of fun. It was busy. They were very, very strict. Like I say in the the books, there was a a woman, Miss Shuhart, that stood on a pedestal, and you did not step out of line, let me tell you. Really? So, So, uh, like, was she stood on a... also, you know... She was also a good boss, and you know, but Mar- that's just the way it was. Margaret, did she, she stood on a pedestal? What was she doing? Keeping an eye on all the employees? Oh, keeping an eye. Yes, she could see wow. all the cashiers down one side and and down the other as well, and uh, just just you know, keeping an eye on the customers and just the whole flow of things. Wow. Now, yeah. I know that one of the things that people loved about Woodward's was kind of the level of service that you got there, right? So, how did you provide that? Well, I think that was part of the strictness, you know, that that they wanted to be sure that you were, you know, greeting the customers, that kind of thing. They did offer a lot of services. I heard you mentioning the car delivery, yeah. uh, delivery to homes. A lot of seniors would come down and uh, pick up a few things they take home, but have their large order delivered in those big blue trucks yes. <laughs> to the house. Uh, that kind of thing. Do you um, do you remember? Uh, to me, also one of the big things was the recipes, right? Oh yes, like that was a big deal, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And and as I say in the books, in the book, from time to time, I'd have to go into the back and relieve the staff there for coffee breaks. And I was I was only seventeen, and I was just terrified that somebody would phone in and ask a, a food question that I didn't know <laughs> the answer to. So so wait a minute, tell me about that. You're telling me that there was like a food line that you could call? Well, there was, yes, a, a line and there was a sort of little office at the back with a demonstration kitchen and that's where all of the recipes were on the wall outside of that. So you could go and seasonally really you know you could pick up a, a recipe you know, Christmas recipes mm. preserves in the summer again part Beautiful. of the customer service now did you ever meet Mona 
I, well, I'm not even sure that I did, but I've, it must have been Mona who I would uh, relieve. But, you know, I was just a kid, you know, and right. I don't even remember seeing her. You know, she'd go on her coffee. Yeah. And then um, I've got I'd Mona's cookbook. See, I've got Mona's yeah. cookbook. So that, and yeah. I'm, it's near and dear to my heart, Mona's cookbook is. Oh, absolutely. And I know many people that is the case too. So, how did you get the job there, Margaret? That must have been a big well, deal. I was in high school. It was my last months of high school. And I don't actually even remember applying for it, but I have the sense that my mother saw an ad in the paper and told me to apply. And I know I was hired almost right away. And I remember going down and meeting Mr. Washburn, who was the manager there, and he wanted me to start work on Friday night. And I had to ask for the night off because I was graduating that night. So he said, okay, well, don't let this happen all the time so you can start on Saturday. (laughs) Oh, wow. So they were strict right from the very beginning. That's right. So what was it? Was it like a family atmosphere when you worked there? Was it all business? Like, what are some of your fondest memories? Well, I think it was very much a family atmosphere. I was one of many students who were hired. Um, and we worked mostly on the weekends, but doing some relief in the summer and in really busy days like $1.49 day. Oh, boy. And so, you know, I made friends and, and still friends with uh, one of the women I trained with who who ended up becoming a manager there. And um, anyway, uh, so it was it was friendly. A lot of the older cashiers, I, there was a bit of a difference, I think, between the uh, full-time yeah. staff and the part-timers, but they really acted as mentors, you know, to, to help you along. So it was very friendly in that way. And they did have um, events for staff. I remember going roller skating, things wow. like that. Uh, do you yeah. think people still miss it, Margaret? Do you oh, think it's a service? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the feedback that I've gotten about the book so far, you know, it's, it's just sort of brought some joy to people because it's a lot of pictures of oh, things that it. would be very familiar. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your memories with us this morning. Okay, well, thank you for having me, Simi. Anytime. That's Margaret Cadwallader. She's written a book called Food Floor, and it really is about the history of working at the infamous Woodward's Food Floor. Uh, boy, I have such great memories of going there, and clearly for a lot of you as well, because I got quite a few emails from people. Uh, Joy wrote me to say, besides being about to find food items I could not find elsewhere and household items such as my favorite lavender paste furniture wax, customers were able to pick up free leaflets such as Creative Home cooking hints and recipes by Mona Brun and James Barber, she said, which I, as a very young mother, learned a lot from. Turns out Joy also has Mona's cookbook, Cooking with Mona, and still refers to it at times. And then she, of course, also remembers $1.49 day, she said, a day where kitchen items and certain food items could be found two for one. She said, I still have lovely bowls and plates that were sold two for one. It's not something you see nowadays. You know what, Joy, you're right. It isn't something you see nowadays. I think it was the service, just that level of service and the stuff that you couldn't find anywhere else that made it such a special place for people to shop back in the day. If you want to share your memories, simi at cknw.com. The book is called Food Floor, if you would like to check that out.